Thank you, Bob. Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Maybe that's where that was supposed to go. Maybe I'm not supposed to move it. Hey, uh, we are in the midst of a series called Call and Response, and uh, we've sort of been working our way through Exodus a little bit. We've only got one week after this one. We'll be in Exodus chapter 15 next week. And this morning is a little tricky for us because it is a familiar text. So Exodus chapter 14 contains the story of, uh, of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, right? And even as I say that, I mean, if you, don't, if, you, if you don't know anything about Exodus, you've probably heard of that, right? If you haven't heard of anything else, you've probably heard, oh yeah, I think there's a, there's a time and place where some people cross the Red Sea, whatever. So it's, a, it's one of those that in some ways we have to kind of set aside our pre-existing ideas about the text and actually look at it fresh because otherwise the temptation is to go, yeah, I already know what happens there. I saw the tomato and the cucumber on the veggie tails get across the deal and I, I completely grasp it. As we begin this morning also, it's important, <clears throat> it's important in looking at a text like this that we don't just look at it as a historical document. It is that. It is a historical document. It is documenting actual things that truly happen. It's not a fable or fairy tale. But sometimes when we come to God's word, we come to it with a sense of, well, I want to know what happened back then. And that's okay, but that's not a complete way in which to approach the scriptures. We also want to be looking at the scriptures and waiting on the spirit of God to speak to us with relation to how God would utilize this text, what he would demonstrate to us about who he is, who he's created us to be, and how we respond to it. And I I think in particular this morning, it's worth stopping here as we begin and saying this, I would love for you, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, to just think in this moment about the conflicts that you're in as you come into this place this morning. Some of you may be in the midst of some horrendous conflict, some huge battles, some heavy things that are weighing on your heart. Some of you may have gotten into a little bit of a skirmish even on your drive to church this morning. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe there's a little bit of conflict that happened when you're trying to decide whether to go to donuts or whether to go to bagels. You know, that's a, that's a, that doesn't happen in your house. That happens in my house. We get into that fight, right? I want you to think about conflict. I want you to think about the people that you may currently be in conflict with. It might be something that's happening in your workplace. It might be something that's happening in your family. It might be something that's happening amongst friends. It could be something in your neighborhood. But I I want you to think about the battles you're in this morning. And I want you to have that firmly in your mind. As you think about the conflicts you're currently engaged in, I want you to have that in your mind because we're going to come back to it as we look at this text. We see the people of God engaged in in a heavy, heavy conflict here in this text. And the way in which they are called upon to respond to that conflict is very relevant to us in the conflicts that we're in currently. So think about the battles you're in. Maybe you can't think of anything else. Maybe you come in here and it's hard not to think about conflict. But I want you to have that in your mind as we look at this. Now, it's interesting, as we look at the text, um, you, you probably know the story. You know that at the end of chapter 14, God is going to lead them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He's going to pile up the water on either side. Uh, the, the people of Israel, who are more than a million in number, including women and children, they'll cross across on dry ground. Uh, Pharaoh's army, the army of the Egyptians, one of the, the strongest military mites on the planet at this time, will pursue them into that gap, and then God will fold the waters over the army of the Egyptians, utterly destroying them, right? You may be familiar with that, but what I want you to see before we even have that conversation is how in the world do the Israelites get into the situation they're in? How did they get into the conflict? How did they get to the place where they look up and they find themselves pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army? 
And maybe you feel like that this morning yourself. Maybe you feel like you're pinned in. Maybe you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place where you literally are out of options. You don't know how to proceed. You don't know how to go back. You don't know how to go forward. You don't know what to do. And you feel like you're out of choices. The Israelites find themselves between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army and they panic. But how did they get there? It's worth us asking the question how they got there because it's also valuable for us to ask how we got into the conflicts we're in. Whatever obstacle, whatever opponent that you're facing this morning in your own life, you have to ask yourself, how did I get into this? How did I get stuck here? How did my wife and I get into this argument? How did I stop talking to some of my closest friends? How how did I get into this battle with my employer or with my coworkers? How did they get into this spot? Well, it's really interesting. The way that the Israelites end up pinned between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh is by being obedient to God. Think about that for a second. I think sometimes we sort of assume that when we're obedient to God, when we follow the roadmap that he's given to us, when we, when we pursue the course that he's laid in front of us, that everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. It's always going to be happy, you know, people feeding us grapes and fanning us with palm fronds or whatever. Like it's just going to always be joyful. But that's not always true. Sometimes when we follow God, sometimes when we're obedient to God, we end up pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. God leads them there. In fact, uh, flip back to chapter 13. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's just, it's just one page back. Just go one page back. Uh, Exodus 13, look at verse 17. We didn't read this last week, so it's worth looking at. In Exodus 13, 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. Uh, the fastest route between Egypt and the promised land, which God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was to go north. That was the quickest way to get there. If you just go north, that is the shortest route, Right? But the Philistines are there. God says this. uh, It says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He was afraid that they would become cowardly when faced with war against the Philistines and they would go back to Egypt. So he leads them a different route. Verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. He leads them in the opposite direction. He leads them in a southerly route. It's much longer. It's not the route that would make common sense. It's, if you were trying to plot this course, you wouldn't think to go the way God leads them. But he does direct them that way. He directs them that way on purpose. And because they follow his path, they end up pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Uh, Let's just be clear there. The the words that are translated equipped for battle basically mean they left in formation. It doesn't mean that we're dealing with Israel, the military might. They didn't have incredible weapons. They did have some fighting men, but that certainly wasn't the bulk of the crowd. When it says here that they were equipped for battle, it basically means that they're, they're sort of moving in formation. So they leave and they're following God's path. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. They moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So not only does he guide them, not only are they obedient to the route that he sets out, even though it's not the one that would have made the most sense looking at a map, he not only gives them direction, but he goes with them. He goes before them and he guides them. Look at chapter 14. 
The Lord said to Moses in verse 1, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Not only are the people in the situation they're in because they were obedient to God and they followed his direction, not only are they in that situation because of their obedience, they're also in the situation because God moves in Pharaoh's heart in such a way that he provokes Pharaoh and his army to pursue. Look at what it says in 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we've done? That we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. So they're not just between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army because they were obedient. They're also between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army because God stirred up this conflict because he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh went, why did I get rid of my servants? And he goes out after them with his army in pursuit. That might not make sense. It might not compute to some of you, but what God's doing here, he says very clearly, actually in verse four, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. What is God doing? He puts them in that difficult situation because of their obedience, because of his overarching plan, what? To glorify himself. If, we've been in, if you've been in this series with us over the course of the summer, what we've seen on every, almost every page of this story is God saying, I am going to do this to draw attention to myself. I'm going to do this to glorify myself, that my name would be known by my people and by the people of Egypt and by Pharaoh. God is always moving in pursuit of his own glory, and that's what he's doing here as well. He's trying to show himself strong. He's declaring who he is by delivering his people. They end up pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army because of their obedience and because of God's purposes. His decision puts them there. It's funny, with my kids, um, when my kids were really little and, and I used to help them get dressed, I don't do that anymore, but when I used to help them get dressed, one of my favorite things to do, and this is because I'm kind of a pest, but I used to, uh, I used to really like to dress my kids wrong. You know what I'm talking about? Like you purposefully do, do it the wrong, that might be confusing to, but like you just, you know, you've got like a little two-year-old and you're, you get the pants out and instead of putting them on right, you put them on his head, right? And you go, oh, I don't know what's going on here. Something's wrong with your body because your pants won't go on, you know? And, cause there's, and he's like, dad, those go on my legs. And I'm like, oh, that's right. You know, and was, or I'll take his socks and put them on his hands and be like, I don't know how your feet got stuck on the end of your arms, but it's really sad, but whatever. We'll just kind of make it. And he's like, dad, those are my hands. You know, and like, we'd have this regular argument where I'm sure as a two-year-old, he was very confused that I had no knowledge of human anatomy whatsoever. <laughs> I didn't understand how pants worked, you know, but it was fun to sort of play that game with him. And in some ways I was, I was doing it in a way that was confusing, but it was because I wanted him to echo back to me that he knew the truth, that he understood the reality of how pants go on and where the socks go and where the shirt goes. I'm leading him in a direction that causes him to heighten his awareness of what reality truly is. That's what God's doing for the people here. He leads them out. They follow his path. They end up pinned between 
the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. I wonder this morning if you maybe feel a little bit like that. Like you don't know where to go. Like you don't know what to do. Like you don't know what else to say. Like you've said everything that can be said and there's nothing else you can do in the conflict you're in. And you feel a little lost. Well, as Pharaoh's army encroaches, look at what happens to the people. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Well, yeah, that makes sense because they are not a fighting force and Egypt's army is absolutely a fighting force. Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses in verse 11, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? You know, it's interesting in the midst of conflict sometimes that we don't necessarily see our enemy as our enemy, but we turn against each other. Who is it that's causing all the trouble for Israel in this particular story? It's the army of Egypt, right? But it isn't the army of Egypt that the people focus their frustration on in the midst of conflict, in the midst of this battle, when they're faced with their fear and their pressure. You look at what they do. They turn to internal conflict. They look at Moses and they go, why did you bring us out here? Because there weren't enough places to bury us in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here? You brought us out here to die? I think it's amazing that sometimes in our fear, sometimes in our panic, Sometimes when we're trying to scatter and, and sort of scramble for an answer, we end up turning against each other instead of leaning on each other in the midst of conflict, right? Instead of looking to each other for solace and solution, we end up pushing each other away. And that's what God's people do here. They push Moses away. Not only that, but they sort of set up a false equation. Look at what they say next. They say uh, in verse 12, didn't we tell you, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Verse 12, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Think back just for a second. Can you remember a time where they said, leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? No, there was not a time where they said, they never said, hey, you know what? We like it just fine here. We've been enslaved for 430 years. Things are glorious, right? No, when God shows up and says, I've heard your cries. I've seen your suffering and I'm gonna deliver you. They had some questions certainly about how that was gonna go down, but there was never a question about whether or not they wanted to be enslaved anymore. So it's interesting that in their panic and in their fear and in their scrambling for an answer, that not only do they turn against Moses, but they also look at him and they bring up sort of a, a, a sort of a false statement. They lie, first of all. They say, didn't we tell you we didn't want to leave? And then they say this, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They say, look, there's only two choices here. We either go back to Egypt and be servants and slaves there, or we die out here. We got these two choices, and if we have to choose between these two things, we'd rather go back and be slaves. It's also true of us. In those moments of conflict, in those battles that we get into, in those moments of opposition where we feel like the obstacles in front of us are insurmountable, we tend to set up these sort of false equations where we go, well, it has to be this way or that way. It's either going to be this or this. And if I have to choose between these, I'm going to go with this one. And what's so interesting is that Moses goes, wait a second. There aren't just two options here. And we see God's decision to lead them to this place. We also see their panic, right? We see the people's distress. We see them say, we would have rather stayed in Egypt. There's only two options. We either go back and serve or we die. And Moses goes, no, no, there's not just two options, my friend. There's a third option that isn't being a servant in Egypt and isn't dying in the wilderness, the third option is to stand still. 
Now that seems kind of weird, but now Moses gives us his direction. He gives the people his direction. And it's, one, it's again, one of my favorite speeches in all the Bible. I find myself coming back to this speech again and again because of its relevance to our lives, to my life on a regular basis. Moses looks at the people. They say, would it be better for us to go back and be slaves than to die out here? And he goes, wait, those aren't the, aren't the only two options. Look at this. Moses says in verse 13, <clears throat> Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Let that soak in for a second. This is a pretty cool speech. You know, for a guy who said, I'm not very eloquent. I'm not very quick in in speech and tongue. I don't talk so good, Moses said to God. This is actually a pretty genius speech he gives them. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation that the Lord will work for you today. These Egyptians that you see in front of you, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is shut up. That's kind of what he says, right? Be silent. Let's think about all, just think about the pieces of this. He starts by saying, fear not. We've talked again and again in the midst of this Exodus series about the ways in which anxiety and fear and doubt sort of plague us, and that happens because... We have limited power and we have limited knowledge. We can't affect the world around us in ways we'd like to. And we also don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what's happening next week or next month. But the great news is that where we are limited in our power and where we are limited in our knowledge, God is unlimited in both categories. He has all the power to affect change. He controls it all and he knows everything. And his unlimited power and his unlimited knowledge, when fit in conjunction with his presence in our life, the fact that he's with us always, give us the ability to never be afraid. They allow us to walk away from fear for good, because while our power and our knowledge are limited, his are not, and he's with us. Moses starts by saying, fear not. I love the story in Mark chapter 4, where uh, Jesus has his disciples on the boat. You know that story? And they go out in the boat. It's actually pretty funny. Uh, this is Mark four thirty-five. It says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus said, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other bo- boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, right? I, this is awesome. So Jesus goes, hey, I got a good idea. Let's get in the boat and we'll go across, right? So they get in the boat and when they get in the boat, the wind is crashing, the waves are coming, the water's filling up the boat. The disciples are panicked. They are freaking out, right? And they go looking for Jesus and they find him in the stern of the boat and he's like, here's Jesus' response. He's like, oh, we're in the boat, there's a storm. Yeah, we're taking that, right? He lays down and goes to sleep in the stern of the boat. And not only that, I like the fact that Mark gives us a little detail that he's laying on a cushion, Oh, isn't that cute? Yeah, and there's this Jesus on a boat. He's just, on a, just laying on a little cushion. So nice, right? The waves, the wind, the boat is rocking. It's filling up with water. And they're like, where's Jesus? And he's like, huh? Right? They go, Jesus, don't you care about us? Look at the text here. It says, they woke him in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Why are you sleeping, they say. Don't you care that we're dying here in the boat? He awoke, verse 39, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. 
And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love it. Jesus wakes up from his nap. He steps out. He takes a look at the storm and he goes, knock it off. And the storm's gone, right? And Jesus looks at them and goes, where's your faith? In essence, he's going, hi, I'm Jesus, right? What's the message here? The message is, yeah, you know what? Sometimes in our lives, the wind is going to rage and the storm is going to crash against our boat. Sometimes we're going to be pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. But listen, if you're in a boat with Jesus and the storm is raging around you, the sails are torn, the mast has been thrown overboard, right? If you're in a boat with Jesus in the midst of a storm like that, you know what you need to do? Find yourself a cushion and take a nap next to him, right? That's the solution. Jesus looks and says, I'm in this boat with you. I'm sleeping on a cushion. Find a cushion of your own, essentially, right? If I'm here, you can rest. And it doesn't matter what the conflict looks like in your life. It doesn't matter what the storms are like that are raging against your boat. If Jesus is there, the message of Moses to the people of Israel is the same as the message for you this morning. Fear not. Not because you have all the power. Not because you have all the knowledge. Not because you and your own strength are going to be able to solve the issues that are in front of you. But because he has those things. And he's with you. Moses says, fear not. And then he says this, stand firm. Back to Exodus 14. Fear not, stand firm. I like that, stand firm. The idea here is to cease from striving. What he instructs them to do is not, it's nothing active. It's not like a thing you gotta go and do. He doesn't say, okay, fear not and dig a trench and sharpen some spears and let's build a trap and we're gonna put spikes down it. You know, like he's not giving them that kind of a deal. He says what? Stand firm. It's not an action, it's a posture. A posture of confidence, that's what he instructs them to do. Don't be afraid and plant your feet and be unwavering. Stand firm. Instead of our striving, instead of our doing, instead of our trying to solve every issue. You know, we grow up in America and we have this mindset that our parents sort of put into us when we were little where they go, oh, Darren, if you want to be the best volleyball player on the team, you can be. Just remember that little train that could and think you can, 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 right? And you'll be able to get all those toys to those kids or whatever, you know? And we kind of have this mindset that says, if you dream it, you can do it. And we bring that into our faith and we sort of assume, well, if I'm following Jesus, then it's going to be about me doing it. I'm going to do Christianity. Woohoo! But if you really look at what the scriptures say in their totality, the real message of the Bible, and this is going to upset some of you, you're going to need to call your parents this afternoon. The real message of the Bible is that you and I are the little engines that can't. You can't do it. All of our good deeds are like filthy rags. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. It's not about our striving. It's not about your work. It's not about your good deeds. It's not about walking old ladies across the street or putting money in the offering plate. Those are great things, but those things don't gain you anything, right? God has the power. Moses says, don't be afraid and take a posture of confidence, a posture of confidence. I love what it says in Ecclesiastes 4, 6. Better is a handful of quietness then two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. A handful of quietness is better than two hands full of toil 
and the striving after the wind. I think so often in the midst of our conflicts, in the midst of our battles, we're striving. We're thinking we can. And we just need to stand firm. Fear not, stand firm. Look at the next thing he says in Exodus chapter 14. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. See the salvation of the Lord. Remember, the whole purpose of what God is doing always is to glorify himself. And our awareness of him at work is a part of that process, right? Being aware of it. I I think so often in our lives, we become calloused to the movement of God around us. Because we've seen it happen before. Because God is working in all these little ways, we just sort of get used to that being the way things work. And we've stopped being amazed by God. We've stopped being in awe of him. We've stopped being in wonder at the way he moves around us because it just feels like the regular course of things. Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and look. Open up your eyes and be aware of this great salvation of the Lord. Look at it, see it, know it for what it is. Because that's part of what God is doing. That's part of what God is doing. I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It says in Psalms 98, 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. In Luke chapter three, it gives us a quotation of John the Baptist about Jesus from Isaiah John the Baptist would preach, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Amen. We are called to have our eyes open, to have our radar up for the movement of God. So often God is moving around us and we just sort of go, yeah, just business as usual. Just how God is, you know. No. No, we want to increase our sensitivity and pay attention. He says, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. Not just see the salvation of the Lord, but look at what he says next, back to Exodus 14. He says, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. There it is, that striving thing again. It's God's work on our behalf. God's work on our behalf. We are beneficiaries of God's overarching plan. I don't know if you see this, but just like in every other page of this study this summer, we have seen this flashing sign, these pointing signposts to the Lord Jesus. It's all over the speech of Moses here, right? It's all over the speech of Moses. He's pointing to Jesus because the work of Jesus is this very same work that you and I, we can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves from sin and death. And so Jesus comes on our behalf He does that work on our behalf. Moses says, stop striving, stop toiling, stop freaking out, stop yelling at me, stop yelling at each other, stop, you know, panicking between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Stand firm, fear not, see the salvation of the Lord that he will work for you. You know, it's interesting. I don't think probably anybody on that shore was praying for what God did. You know what I mean? Like, I think if you and I were pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, we'd be like, please part the waters and let us walk across on dry land and then let the enemy go in there and then drown them. God, that'd be awesome, right? But we'd only pray that because we have a context in which to pray it because we've read this story. We've seen it done before. For the people in the midst of this, when it went down, they weren't praying for God to part the waters and lead them across. They couldn't have. God has more creativity in his little finger than we have in our entire bodies. God's ability to be creative, to resolve the situation, to rescue us, 
And not just what he does for them, but his creativity in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to come in the body, to take our sin upon himself, to die on the cross and shed his blood, to rise from the dead and extend to us by his grace resurrection life. Nobody was looking for that exactly. They were waiting for a savior. They were looking forward for atonement. They were looking forward for somebody to come and rescue them. But nobody saw it going down the way Jesus did it. Moses says, stand firm, fear not, and see the salvation that the Lord will work for you. And not just the salvation that the Lord will work for you, but the salvation the Lord will work for you today. The idea is that God continues to rescue, that there's an ongoing work of God. See the work that he will do. I love what it says in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See the great salvation that the Lord works for you. That's not all he says. Look at, look at back to Moses' speech. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He says, for the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. I love it. Moses goes, listen, stop panicking, stop looking at me, and do this. Everybody, look at Pharaoh's army. And they're like, we don't want to look at them. They're coming here to stab us. You know, whatever. So there, he's like, look. Right? Look at Pharaoh's army. You see him, everybody? And they go, yeah, we see him. He goes, you're never going to see them again. Take a good look. Because after today, they will be utterly and completely, totally eradicated. The problem you see in front of you that seems so insurmountable, the obstacle that you can't figure out how to climb, it's about to be decimated by the power of God. These Egyptians that you see in front of you, you'll never see again. These Egyptians who've been cracking the whip for you and your great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather and for the last 400 years, these oppressors that have been hanging over your head, take a good look, folks, because you will never see them again. And the picture and the corollary to what the Lord Jesus does for us in eradicating sin and death is unbelievable. I love what it says in Micah. In fact, in Micah chapter seven, Micah seven nineteen says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. I like what Micah says here because I have a feeling that Micah is thinking about the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea and the corollary between our sin in prophesying what Jesus will do. We can't do anything about our sin. We can't do anything about the death that reigns in us apart from Christ. We are incapable of saving ourselves. But he not only pays the penalty for our sin, he eradicates it. He tramples it underfoot and he drowns it in the sea. Moses says, look, you know, sometimes in our lives, we allow these momentary troubles to have long lasting effects, don't we? You get into a little bit of a conflict and what, what you, you don't talk to your wife for a week, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about other dudes, right? <laughs> you get into a conflict and all of a sudden people you've been friends with for 30, 40 years, you don't talk to anymore? You get into a conflict or a battle and, and all of a sudden it was just over a couple of these little things, little preferential things or whatever. And all of a sudden, it, this tiny little thing has these lasting consequences. Moses says, you see these Egyptians in front of you and you're so freaked out, but that's just a momentary issue. You're never going to see it again. He says, back to Exodus chapter 14, all you have to do in 14, 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you and you, what, what's your job? 
You have only to be silent. Well, what? I don't have to... I don't have to pray a magic prayer. I don't have to like recite a certain thing. I don't have to do a certain ceremony to draw a thing on the ground and light some stakes or whatever, right? No. God's gonna do it. Stop freaking out. He says, fear not. Stand firm. Take a posture of confidence. Stand firm and see the great salvation that the Lord will work for you today. These enemies you see in front of you, you'll never see again because of his great power. He will fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. Now let me tell you, this morning, that is a great word to you and I, who find yourselves in conflict, who find yourselves in a battle, who find yourselves in the midst of a thing that you don't know what you're gonna do. You feel pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Can I tell you this morning, there is a great word for you in this, that you don't have to be afraid that you can stand firm. But before you get too excited, let me say this. The conflict that the people of God are in They're in because of their obedience to God. Because they followed his route. They went on his course. They followed his direction. They ended up pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army because they did what God told them to do. This morning, whatever that battle is, whatever that conflict is, whatever that insurmountable thing that you're facing looks like, can I ask you this? How'd you get there? How'd you get there? Because that's the key in all of this. The key is, are you there because God directed you there? Or are you there because of your own selfishness? Are you in a conflict with somebody else because of your own ego or your own pride or your own preferences? Are you in a conflict right now? Are you in a battle, locked in heated battle with other people because you're trying to set up an idol? Because I'll tell you absolutely, God is not gonna come to your defense in setting up an idol to lead you away from him. He's never gonna walk alongside you as you walk away. He's never gonna assist you in getting further and further from his glory and raising up your own. But if you're on the path you're on because of who he is and because of his direction and because of his obedience, the great news for you is he fights those battles. He fights those battles. If you're in a battle because God directed you there and because of your obedience to him, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation that the Lord will work for you. The enemy in front of you, you'll never see again. He will fight for you. You have only to be silent. But if you're in the midst of a conflict in which you've been trying to raise up an idol or in which you've been fighting for your own preferences or in which you've been fighting for your own selfishness or you've been pursuing your own glory and you're looking left and right and you're waiting for God to part the Red Sea in front of you, that deliverance is never gonna come because he's never gonna lead you across on dry land further away from him. He's not gonna assist you in worshiping idols. He's not going to come to your assistance and your aid in raising up a false God. So we have to ask ourselves not only what is this, what's the scenario that I'm in, but why did I get here? How did I get here? And if you find that you're in a situation today that you're in because you've been obedient to God, because you've been faithful, the great news for you is take hope. I love a verse. I had a, a Jim Wright came up to me after the first service and he gave me this verse. Psalms 112, chapter four says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. Verse eight says, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is not afraid, verse seven, of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. If you're here this morning and you're in the midst of a heated battle because you've been faithful, the great news is for you, stand firm. Watch what God will do. It's gonna be awesome. But if you're in the midst of a conflict with your spouse or with your children or with your boss at work, if you're in the midst of a conflict 
pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, but you got there because you charted your own course, because you're on your own route, then the message for you this morning is it's time to course correct. It's time to figure out how you got on this course and get off that course and get back into obedience with God. Get back on course with a, with a route that he has dictated that leads to his glory and his glory alone. He says, I am God in heaven and there is no other. I will not share my glory with another. God comes to the aid of those. He fights his battles. The key for us is to make sure we're in his battles. Does that make sense? He fights his battles. So the key for us is to make sure that we're in his battles. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray. I pray that you would move in us, that you would give us a clear sense of your deliverance and your strong arm coming to our aid, that you would help us to look at where our feet are and determine whether or not we're on a course that you plotted, that you set for us, or whether we're on a course of our own direction. And in the cases, God, where we find ourselves to have veered off track or have to land, landed in a place where we're not on the path that you set for us, God, I pray that you would give us grace, that you would wrap your arms around us, that you would show us clearly by the work of your spirit how to get back on course. And then in that place, God, you would give us the peace of knowing that you will fight for us. We have only to be silent. Help us to cease from our striving, to fear not to allow the light to dawn on those who put their trust in you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me as we sing? Uh, we're going to sing a brand new song in response to this text this morning.